HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. Okay, once again, it is Thursday, 1 o'clock, and you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we are on the line with Atina Diffley talking about her memoir. And Atina, before we, we kind of took a, a technical break there, I had asked you um, how you got into farming. You know, I really I grew up in a family that produced or wildcrafted much of our food. So I was raised with really good food and as a child that was a real important spiritual part of my life, but not something I thought about a lot on a technical level. And then when I left my parents' home and had to buy food in a grocery store, it was a real awakening for me because the food was just really flat. It wasn't it had no life to it. So I already knew I wanted to be a farmer, but that was a cincher in that I had to grow food to eat. Um, and this was in the the 70s when there weren't a lot of options for organic and alternative food systems, and I had to really create my own to be able to eat. So that was the real impetus for me, is making me really go out there and find a way to do it. And so you, um, along I think with your partner Martin, started a farm called Gardens of Egan, and that was, you know, in, in your bio here, it's listed as an urban edge organic vegetable farm. When you guys started on that piece of property, was it on the urban edge, or is that something that kind of came later? The, the property we started on, my husband started farming in 1973, and it had been in his family since the 1850s, so he was fourth generation. And he grew up in the 50s and 60s when that was the food source into the Twin Cities and Urban Edge, and the freeway came in in the 80s, and that was really the push to suburbanize that community. So when I joined him in 1985 on his family's land, there was only two farms left, and we were one of them. Okay, so the, it had been kind of a larger collection of farms run by different members of, of his family? Well, the whole community. The whole community, um, That okay. township and the adjoining townships were some of the primary food sources for the Twin Cities. 
And until the late 70s, the grocery stores were still going to farmers markets and buying direct from farmers. And the local farmers had delivery routes into the cities where they went to people's homes. They had keys to people's homes and actually put the food right into their um, refrigerators. <laughs> well, and that that's really a different, fell apart. Yeah, that's a different level of service, I guess. I mean, there is. it seems like there is some, uh, in a weird way, I guess, anyway, here in, in New York, a... Uh, a return to that kind of home-based delivery Mm -hmm. with regards to groceries. I know Fresh Direct is a a booming business, and um, Mm -hmm. I I don't think we're quite at the point where we're giving delivery people keys, nor Mm -hmm. I think is the the food coming from quite so direct a source. But it is interesting how I think throughout the course of time, you know, this type of service provision kind of come comes and goes in waves. And I'm curious, when you joined um, him on the farm, was it already in, in organic production, or was that a change that happened when you joined him? No, when he started in 1973, he was organic and was certified in 1974. The farm has always been certified. But his relatives who farmed the land before him also did not use chemicals. In fact, there's a funny family story where he wanted to join uh, 4-H and wasn't allowed to because 4-H was teaching the children how to use lawn fertilizer. And his family was um, correlating that with the Nazis in Germany and the Holocaust and the destruction of a race of people, and they were saying this was a similar thing, only an assault on nature. So it was definitely what he was taught as a child. And just because I'm not super familiar with kind of the, the culture of farming in in your area, maybe you can set the tone for us a little bit. I mean, in that in that time when you were first getting started, I mean, were you more the exception than the norm? And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how that has or hasn't shifted in, you know, the 30 years that you have been engaged in agriculture in that region. That, that would be great, because when Martin started in 1973... It was really during the Earl Butts era and the escalating prices and get bigger, get out mentality. So he was really going the opposite direction. And the extension, uh, all the powers that be really said it was impossible to grow organic at that point in time. So he and his peers really had to figure things out themselves. And he had a lot of information from old timers in the community. They provided a lot of his ideas for how he began But in the 70s and 80s, most of the information that people had on organic farming were coming from farmers observing and experimenting and trying things that used to be done and then sharing that information. That started to really change in the late 80s after we had the LR scare. Uh, In the 90s, the market started to really grow. But it wasn't until 2000 that we started to get real support through research from universities that's really been in the last 10 years. We've gotten that kind of information. Now the growth is just exponential. And the majority of people in the United States now say they would like to buy organic food if they could. Yeah. So what a big change. And, and, well, it's interesting if you look at food production in the country, too, the amount of agri- you know, organic food that's available um, you know, definitely wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be possible for even half the people who maybe make that statement to actually purchase, given kind of current production no, levels. it wouldn't be right now. And so it's a whole step in the in that direction. But in the 70s and 80s, no one knew what organic meant for the most part. And every single customer we had, we had to educate. And it's a constant situation that we were in. And as far as, I mean, you know, 
changes in organic certification over this same period? I mean, in your perspective, have have those standards? Um, in, in what ways have those standards changed? Are they are they more stringent, or are they clearer? Or has enforcement shifted in ways that make it, you know, easier or harder for producers who are looking to kind of start? Um, or transition into organics, you know, for someone who would be kind of essentially in your position, but into in your position um, in the in the late '70s, but in, but in 2012, I mean, does it does the the landscape seem the same with regards to the certification process? Well, before we had federal standards in 2002, we were relying on state or organizational standards. In Minnesota, we did have state standards, but a lot of states did not. And so they were relying on an organization. And it was really problematic because each organization or institution had different standards. So the federal standards were really important to help get that reciprocity between different, all of the country. So that's been really crucial. And it's been really important that consumers and farmers stay involved with the federal standards and keep them the way we want them and not allow them to be diminished. I feel good about the standards. There's been some aspects of them, such as the pasture rule, that weren't written clear enough, and we've had to go back over them and get more um, tight wording so that there weren't loopholes. And some of that work has been done. It's been done with the pasture rule, and we need more of that work yet in some areas. But for the most part, the organic standards are great, and I'm happy with them. I want to make a point of how crucial certification is for for two particular reasons that are relevant to farmers. One is that when a farmer is certified, it gives them an opportunity to protect themselves legally. And when people read my book, Turn Here, Sweet Corn, they'll get some of that story through a law uh, issue we had with the Coke Industries through a pipeline when they tried to eminent domain our farm. We were able to protect it in other farms in the state of Minnesota with our organic mitigation plan because we were certified. And that organic system plan we had really was admissible in a court of law as a document that had been inspected, certified, and was federally registered. So that is really an important tool for farmers if they're using organic methods to uh, protect themselves because you never know when something like drift or eminent domain can happen. The other reason it's so important to get certified is it's the best way that the USDA can count and track this huge change, and it's a measurement of farmers doing it and are being successful and that consumers are demanding it. So if a farm is using those practices but not certified, it's hard to get that information into the statistics, and those statistics are really important for getting research dollars, for getting uh, farm bill changes, and for all, getting all that policy change that will really be a big part of moving this um, forward as a movement. I think you, you really touched on some of the, the key points of what, what I, I really liked um, throughout your book is this kind of amazing balance of really on-the-ground perspective of, of what it was like to be facing different um, small and large problems um, as you have gone through the past, you know, 30 years of farming, but also really, I, I think you did such a nice job of, and and obviously it's clear from speaking with you now, understanding kind of the policy and broader based implications uh, of choices that individual farmers can make and how that um, does or doesn't kind of give uh, the actual farmer power or uh, authority in with regards to their land. And this, the story that you tell throughout your, your book is so fascinating to me because it seems like 
on every level, your your farm has really gone through kind of the gamut of um, issues that ag has been facing. Um, I think since the Earl the Earl Butts era, and so when you when in in the bio, you know, it says that from eighty nine to to um, ninety two that your farm was bulldozed for suburban development, and you you had brought in a filmmaker to kind of um, document that process. Can you can you talk a little bit about why and, and how that happened? The development? Yeah. The city of Egan had not left any land zone for agriculture. And there was really no recognition that agriculture in a community was valuable and needed. There was no conversation at that point in time about food security or food stability. It really just wasn't on anyone's radar screen. So the school district needed 20 of the 120 acres, and you can't really say no to that. And then that brought sewer and water across the rest of the land, which brought in sewer and water assessments because the land is seen as more valuable once it has sewer and water access. And you don't have to pay those assessments until the land is sold, but there's 11% interest on them. So in seven years, the assessments double. If you owe half a million dollars in those assessments, in seven years, you owe a million. In another seven years, you owe two million. You can see how very quickly the assessments can become more expensive than the value of the land. So it really forces the owners and the families, oftentimes these lands are owned by multiple family members, into making very difficult decisions, and oftentimes they don't agree, which is something that happened in this case. Some family members wanted to sell and some didn't, um, and it can create these really difficult situations. So it's a noose around the family's neck and the land's neck, and usually the land ends up paying. So that land was sold and developed, and that was one of the most valuable experiences of my life because what I actually saw happen through that development process was ecological collapse on a miniature scale because they developed that land over a period of four years, and we continued to farm land adjacent to land that was being bulldozed. And the bulldozer process removed all life. They took every tree, every shrub, every blade of grass, all the habitat for the birds, the frogs, the beneficial insects that managed the pests on our organic farm. All of our allies were gone, and suddenly we went from having really productive, healthy crops to having major disease and pest problems. And when it would rain, there was no life to take the water in. And so it would cause major erosion into our fields. We simply couldn't farm without life adjacent to it. And I'd known that on an intellectual level, and we all grew up learning about the services we receive from the ecosystem, such as fresh air and clean water. But I saw what happened when it's gone. And it was really profound. It was also really profound on a spiritual level, especially for my children who were young. And, you know, anyone who's watched a child in nature sees that connection that a child is able to make uh, with nature and the spiritual aspect of it, and they watch it be destroyed and not protected. And that in and of itself showed me how absolutely crucial nature is because their loss was so huge. That sounds, you know, really traumatic and and how did you you make that decision can you talk a little bit about making the decision to to leave that piece of property and and the search for kind of your the next stage of your your farming career yeah martin and i only owned an acre there we were not the owners of the land they were owned by his cousins so it wasn't our decision on the sale 
And once they started bulldozing, they bulldozed right up to that acre of our land, and we were organic vegetable farmers. So we were renting land on 18 properties just to keep the business going with a 30-mile radius. It was a managerial nightmare. But it was really hard to find the right piece of land that met our needs, and we actually looked for five years before we found a piece that worked for us. Um, Once we did move, we bought really good fertile prairie loam, which is what we have here in Minnesota from, you know, centuries and centuries of prairie grasses building those soils. So once we got here, our farm really thrived. Um, I want to, we're going to take maybe a short break, and when we come back, you have this um, great term you call the, talk about it as virgin soil. So I'd like to tuck into a little bit about um, that first year of of growing crops in your new location, but we're going to take a short break. Ain't no way to explain or say how painful the hangover was today. In front of the toilet, hands and knees Trying to breathe in between the dry heaves My baby made me some coffee Afraid that if I drink some It's probably coming right back out me Couple of Advil, relax and chill At a standstill with how bad I feel I think I need to smell fresh air So I stepped out the back door and fell down the stairs The sunlight hit me dead in the eye Like it's mad that I gave half the day to last night My bad sight made me trip on my ass Right into that patch of grass Like that's life All of a sudden, I realized something The weather is amazing, even the birds are bumping Stood up and took a look and a breath And there's that bite that I forgot that I possessed Never really seen exercise as friendly But I think something's telling me to ride that 10-speed The brakes are broken, it's alright Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. All right, we are back, and uh, the the song you heard during break was was our attempt at giving a shout-out to a fellow Minnesotan, that's the rapper Atmosphere, but... Maybe not the most choice clip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Atina, so you went from farming, you know, on eight different, 18 different parcels of land, and you said in a 30-mile radius. Um, definitely sounds like a managerial nightmare. Also, just really inefficient. And, and can, so when you, when you guys left that, set up did it did it happen kind of all at once where you moved from all these little bits and pieces that you had put together to kind of keep the business running to one more traditional setup or yeah we we bought 100 acres and put it through an organic transition of 36 months before we farmed it we never farmed land that was in tradition in transition we always took it out of production so when we come to that land after having a rest for three years it is in really good condition and when we got to our new farm, our yields doubled the first year without doing anything different, just from having really built that soil up. And, and what, that was a really beautiful thing to see. Yeah. I, what, I mean, when you talk about building soil, I mean, it's a phrase that we hear a lot, but can, can you tell us, like, what are some of the technical things that are actually happening during that 36 months? Um, mm-hmm. What are you looking at as far as yeah. creating that? 
When we came onto this property, it had been chemically farmed, and the soil was extremely compacted. When it would rain, the water couldn't enter the soil because the microbial life had been destroyed. So it would either pool or it would run off. And when it would run off, it would take soil with it. So it was really problematic. It would have been very difficult to grow vegetables on it in that condition during that transition period. So what the first thing we want to do is bring the life back to the soil because the life is the renewal process for the fertility, and the life is where the nutrient cycling happens. So you could put all sorts of nutrients in the soil, but if you don't bring back the microbial life, it's not going to stay there, those nutrients, and they're not going to cycle properly for the plants. So bringing that life back, we first thing we do is inoculate the soil with a really healthy compost. There's a lot of microbial life in that compost, bacteria, fungus, all sorts of life there. And then we plant soil-building crops on the land. We try to address what's really needed. Usually if land is transitioned, the first thing we need is carbon, high-carbon plants. So we'll plant something called sorghum sudan grass, which grows to about 10 feet tall, and then we mow that, and it grows back to 10 feet. So we get a lot of biomass, and that gets in the soil and starts to add that carbon, which is going to help with the hydrology, and it's going to provide food for all that microbial life. And that microbial life... What it does that is so beautiful is if you imagine soil as having um, being made up of tiny, tiny little particles smaller than the tip of a pencil, if there's no microbial life, that's real compacted and hard. There's nothing to create loft. And the microbial life knits those little soil particles together into aggregates, and that's a real big part of that um, hydrology of the water being able to flow through and then be absorbed by the organic matter. So we just keep adding that organic matter and feeding that microbial life, and within three years, the soil is in really good condition, and the water does soak in, and it does hold. One thing that's a really great little number is that for every 1% of organic matter on an acre soil, that acre can hold another 16,500 gallons of water. So organic farming systems really help drought-proof the land and the subsequent crops. Wow. Um, one of the things that I, I I think is so challenging for people who are, are looking to enter the, one of the many things, I guess, for, for people who are looking to get into agriculture is um, essentially this idea that you're able to start with this essentially finished farm where you, you kind of Turn, turnkey operation and you plant your first crop and the soil health is great and you're able to have organic certification and every all your systems are super efficient. And I think in reality, a lot of times those things are built um, off of a number of decisions over a long period. And, and financially, I mean, how did you guys make that work for that 36 months where you essentially have no production coming off of this land? It's easier for vegetables because they're so high value. You know, we have vegetable crops that are worth $100,000 an acre. Some of them are worth maybe six or 10000 an acre, like sweet corn, but then others are really valuable. So it takes costs us two or $300 an acre to take it out of production, and the fertility that we get from that is so, we get so much more than that in the following crops. But it does require some level of stability. Um, I've just found that it's not worth it to try to crop land while it's in transition. It doesn't pay out. Now, this is much harder for commodity crop producers, grain crops, and dairy producers, 
where they don't have the high values per acre, so it's much harder for them to take land out of production. One way that works well for people if they need to continue to take an income from that land is to put it into hay, because you can grow hay relatively easily without chemicals, and the the root structure and the organic matter from the hay will help build their soils. It won't be as fast as if they took it out of production and they only added the organic matter to the soil because they're taking that hay off. But it's a nice, like, midway to do it if they have to maintain some sort of an income there. Sure. How how did you decide to, to pursue writing a memoir? I mean, between all, all the different aspects of, of farming and running your business and raising you know, having a family, raising a family, um, you know, where did you find the time and what was, like, compelled you to, to carve that space out in your day mm-hmm. to, to kind of record your story? Well, one of the practices we had as farmers is that every single year in the middle of winter, as part of our annual planning, we quit farming for one week. And we formalized it. We would shake each other's hand and say, I do not, I'm not a farmer for the next seven days. So we had a 51-week commitment that we would make then to farming. But just because we owned a farm and we were farmers doesn't mean we have to be farmers. And we really wanted to be farming consciously and having it be a solid choice. But we knew that there would come a point in our lives where we wanted to do other things with our lives and develop other parts of ourselves. And so that happened in 2008 after Martin started in 73, 1973. So he'd been farming for 35-some years, and I started in 85 with him, we decided to no longer farm, and we sold our business name. We still own our land, and we haven't been actively farming since 2008. So that's how I found the time, is I, I made the time. I knew I wanted to become a writer and to take all the things I'd learned. As an organic farmer, you know, we see so much life. Every single year we go through this process of, of birth and life and death in the annual process. And so that's so instructive. And I just wanted the the opportunity to develop those speaking and writing skills and be able to really share what I'd learned. So that was a decision we made um, to do that with our lives, move to the next thing. Well, that's like um, a relatively unconventional transition plan, um, but sounds like ultimately something that has been very satisfying um, for you. And what do you what do you foresee um, in the future? I mean, will you be doing more writing or speaking, or or what, what's the plan going forward? Yeah, I'm focusing the next fifteen years on writing and speaking, and I've got a lot of stories to tell. My next book is a prequel to Turn Here, Sweet Corn. And it really brings in Martin's story from the 50s and 60s because he really acted as a bridge between the old-timers' knowledge that had been a major part of this food community that we had here in the Twin Cities that was really lost. And somehow as a young man, he saw that they were just walking libraries. And if he didn't collect that information, it would be gone. And, And what a major loss that would be. So he has collected a lot of that information, and I want to get that book written next to really capture that information before he's gone, because he is a walking library now. He's kind of taken their position, and he's now the old-timer. <laughs> so that's really important. I want to be able to capture that. Yeah. So that's the next project. Oh, that sounds exciting. Um, I know the, the USDA has... Um 
You know, in, the, in recent years, there's been a kind of real shift in recognition to support and develop resources for um, new farmers um, looking for ways to incentivize um, mm-hmm. people to join the profession of farming. There's been an increased recognition of women and people of color in, in regards to farming. And, you know, those are all, you know, kind of at a national level. And then throughout the, the U.S., there's a variety of kind of state and local programs that look to provide support to people entering the field. And I guess from your perspective, are there any like standout programs or, or policies or resources that you, um, you know, you are really excited about or would be interested in directing people who are kind of thinking about embarking on a, a path like this? Well, some of the standout ones are ATRA, A-T-T-R-A, and they have hundreds of publications online that are free. Also, SARE, S-A-R-E, Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. They have four books that they are so valuable, how to build soils, how to rotate, how to um, manage cover crops, and then they have one of beneficial insects. And those four books are just fantastic. I think it's about $80 for the four of them, but you can actually download them for free. And they're incredibly valuable. Once you read them, you have to buy them because they're so good you want to have the paper copy. And then there's Moses in the Midwest, Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Services. They're doing really great education. But the bottom line for getting started is to get experience, get experience. I can't stress that enough. It's very important that people don't just go out and buy a piece of land and start farming. They're going to make too many mistakes that are going to be too costly, and so oftentimes then they don't succeed. If they make those cost mistakes in the beginning, they can't dig out of that financial hole. But if they get a couple years' experience, even if they have to pay for it, it's worth it. Oftentimes people will tell me, well, I can't afford to not get paid a lot. Uh, But they need what they're going to learn there in those years of learning from other people. And as far as um, the the folks who are now farming your land, how have you guys maintained? What is there a... um, how do you manage that relationship with regards to um, any kind of major decisions? Are you guys and in, how involved are you or what kind of limitations? We're not involved at all with the farming of the land. They're tenants and they lease the land and the lease spells out our expectations of them as tenants. Um, but we don't have any involvement with the actual operation of the farm. It's a lot healthier that way. They really need their own autonomy to be able to run the farm their way. But they're moving at the end of this year to their own land. They've purchased land, and so they'll be moving to that, and then we'll be putting our farm into hay and perennial crops. We're going to get apples and nuts and perennialize it, so we're real excited about that again. Delicious. Maybe um, just we're we're about out of time, but I was wondering if you could uh, illuminate us on the, the choice of title for the book. Turn here, sweet corn. You know, that was a sign we had by our road forever, but it's so important as we look to changing our food systems that we remember that how powerful we are as consumers and as farmers because the Monsantos and these organizations that a lot of people complain about, they're not going to just change because it's the right thing to do. We as farmers and consumers have to create the lives and world that we want, and we have the power to do that. We haven't talked about the lawsuit we had with the Koch brothers at um, talked about in the book. It's about the last 50 pages, but our success there was largely based on the amount of consumer advocacy 
that stepped forward, and over 4,500 people wrote a letter. That made a huge difference. And what consumers do and the decisions they make, that's how this is all going to change. And I think that provides a really um, nice uh, way for people who aren't farming to engage in, in protecting and preserving you know, these landscapes and, and farming and food production in this, in this way. As you know, you don't have to be a farmer or volunteer to pick weeds to kind of have a voice in, in how that world looks. I mean, essentially, yeah, you're buying choices. Yeah, and I want choices. consumers to know that they have a relationship with the land that feeds them. They might never, ever see that land. They might never work on that land. They might not do any farm activities, but they have a relationship with that land to that food. And so they're responsible. They're just as responsible as the farmer. There's no one to blame here. We each take action, care of our own actions, and that's how this changes. And so for them, just starting from where they are, if buying a little bit of organic food is a step in the right direction, do that. If you're already buying organic food, maybe buying it more direct from the farmer or buying it from stores that buy direct from the farmer. We can all take an action where we are. It could be cleaning supplies. It could be changing the lawn care supplies that we use. Just every day doing something to protect that land that we are all so dependent upon and cannot live without. Atina, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that we really only briefly touched on, on some of the many great stories that, that you lay out in your book. And if people want to purchase it, which I definitely suggest they do, and I, I'm looking forward to sitting down and being able to do a more thorough read, um, where can they find it? Where is there a place you would prefer them yeah. to choose Turn to buy Here from? Sweet Corn is the title. Turn Here Sweet Corn by Tina Diffley. It's available anywhere books are sold, online, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, the Indies. University of Minnesota is the publisher. Um, most of the bookstores I've been in are carrying it, so it seems to be widely available. And any plans in the future for a trip to the East Coast? I'm going to be there this winter teaching classes in New York, actually. Oh, so excellent. Hopefully I can set up some book talks. I'll contact you then, and maybe you'll have some contacts. Yeah, yeah, we would love, and we'd love to have you in, in the studio for, for a follow-up and, and to hear more about what you know, what, what's developing with the new book. So thanks again. Uh, it was wonderful to have you. Once again, you've listened to another episode of The Farm Report. Tune in next week. We'll get a little update from our old friend, Stephanie Fisher, who's been traveling the U.S. Uh, as a farm intern. So we'll get a little perspective on, on that end. And we'll see you next week, 1 o'clock, for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.